Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, July the 28th, the heart, the heat of the summer. And we might have some good news, at least judging from the headlines today. Nothing about the T-man, nothing about Trump. It seems as if America is getting back to normal. Manchin is talking to the Democratic Party. Uh, People more and more obsessed with economics, the growing recession, which seems to be a return to normality. That's certainly the case in the New York Times. The same as in the Wall Street Journal, recession fears loom as U.S. economy contracts again. No sign of Trump, no sign of January 6th or the destruction of democracy or the imminent civil war. So maybe the news is good on July the 28th, 2022. Although I suspect that my guest today, who is the author of a new book, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy, might disagree. Daryl M. West is a prolific author. He's re- he's written, I mean, he's, I'm sure he's read thousands of books. He's He seems to have authored thousands, certainly hundreds of them. He's at the Brookings Institute, very distinguished American scholar. And he has, as I said, this new book out, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. He is joining us from Washington, D.C., as he said to me before we went live from the belly of the beast, Daryl, you're smiling, but your book isn't very cheerful, is it? Well, Andrew, it's nice to be with you. But yeah, the title, I think, kind of gives away the message here. There is an assault on American democracy taking place, and we need to take that very seriously. It is a risky moment in American history. Well, you're certainly not the first or the last person to observe that, Daryl. We've had many, many shows on this. What what are you saying that's original? What are you saying that other people haven't already said in power politics? Well, there are a lot of people who are focused on Donald Trump and the threat that he represents to American democracy. And, you know, there certainly is a, a, a large part of the threat that emanates from him. But in my book, Power Politics, I argue Trumpism is going to outlast Trump himself. Like even if Trump disappeared from the political scene tomorrow, the threat would still be there because there is a concerted effort to uh, limit voting rights. Uh, We have a loss of majority rule in America. When you look at our major institutions, the Electoral College kind of illustrates that. But there are problems more broadly defined when you kind of look at our political system as a whole. You know, there's a threat to the authoritative institutions in America, uh, the news media, uh, universities, there are attacks on academic freedoms. Uh, Professors are being told they cannot teach about America's ugly racial history, uh, for example. So the threat is bigger than the way a lot of people define it. It clearly goes beyond Trump and it goes beyond either voting rights and or uh, the nature of our political institutions. It's not convincing, though, Daryl. I mean, you're talking about a country that had a period of McCarthyism. What's different about today? And, uh, you know, the left accuses the right of of being intolerant on race. The the right accuses the left and vice versa. Neither cases seem to me to be particularly convincing. And certainly this has always been the case anyway in American history, as one side is always accusing the other of intolerance and being against democracy. And yet the democracy always seems to have worked. 
you're right that certainly this is not the first time we've had political polarization in America, and it's not the the only time where we've seen extremism uh, in America. But I do think there is a perfect storm of a number of different things that have combined right now that make the risk greater than what we've seen at past points uh, in American history. So, for example, our information ecosystem, uh, the rise of social media platforms means that misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda uh, can spread very quickly, uh, not just within the United States, but around the uh, world. The problems of our civil society, the attacks on uh, universities and uh, news organizations are uh, certainly uh, highly problematic. Information is being uh, weaponized. I mean, just uh, this week, Donald Trump sent a 280-page letter to CNN threatening a defamation lawsuit because CNN reporters have challenged uh, the what they call the big lie, the fact that he uh, says uh, the 2020 election was stolen. He is suing. He says he uh, wants to sue them for uh, defamation. And so the legal protections that uh, American journalists, American academics, and other advocates uh, long have prided themselves on, it's starting to disappear. Like some of the things that we take for granted in our democracy are getting weaker, uh, and we cannot count on procedural justice being in our future. Yeah, I have to admit, Daryl, that my reading is quite different from yours. It seems as if the, the fever in America is subsiding. Uh, lots of pieces over the last few days about Rupert Murdoch's hostility, for example, towards Trump, the Wall Street Journal, Fox, they're all at best indifferent to him and at worst now quite hostile. I just don't see, uh, you, you keep on talking about the threat to the university. Where's the threat? Can you give me some examples? There are threats from many different sources. I mean, there are a number of state legislatures around the country that have already passed legislation limiting the teaching of racial history in the United States and basically telling professors what they can teach and what they cannot teach. Uh, I taught for a number of years at Brown University before I went to uh, Brookings, and I don't recall uh, that being the case in other historical eras. I'm guessing, uh, though, Daryl, that there's nothing in the, the Rhode Island state legislature um, uh, suggesting that you can't teach race in universities or colleges or high schools. Isn't this confined to um, a geographical region? Uh, and, and is it, it is, something that we should really of, be concerned with? But it's a big part of American geography. I mean, uh, many southern states have done it and many states in the heartland are doing it. I think uh, almost a third of American states have passed some type of uh, restrictive uh, uh, laws uh, on academic uh, freedom. And so uh, that is certainly a very worrisome. If you look at other countries, I mean, there are a number of countries that used to be functioning democracies. And I'm thinking about uh, places like Poland, Hungary, uh, the Philippines, uh, and uh, Turkey. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago, they were democracies. There's, a there's an authoritarian playbook where basically they take out the authoritative institutions, the institutions whose job is to hold leaders accountable. Uh, you weaken those, you destroy uh, the credibility of uh, news organizations, and then it becomes much easier for authoritarian sentiments to take over. In the book- but How is that they, happening? I, I take your point. We've done many shows on Hungary, on the Philippines. Maria Ressa is a, is a good friend of mine. Uh, Moises Naim, who I'm sure you know from Washington, D.C., many shows on this, but I just don't see it in America. I don't see the 
the, 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 the panicky conclusion that, that, that you're reaching about the destruction of, of, uh, of democracy. I mean, you talk about one or two state legislatures uh, banning certain kinds of teaching. There's always been a cultural war, hasn't there, Daryl, in America? And it's ongoing and inevitable. It will never, it, 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 it will never end. Uh, but it doesn't. That doesn't suggest the end of democracy or even a crisis of democracy. Well, I have a chapter in the book on public opinion, and I analyze a number of public opinion surveys. And the public is worried about the future of democracy. But the public's enough- always worried, uh, Daryl. There's a, a general hysteria in this country from the beginnings. That doesn't tell us anything one way or the other, does it? Well, it's not just a worry about the way the political system is functioning today. It's actually much deeper than that. Uh, There are polls that document the rise of authoritarian sentiments within the American public. Uh, There are people who basically have bought uh, Trump's uh, line on a number of uh, different issues, but there are Americans who are willing to act on that, uh, willing to consider extra legal, uh, unconstitutional actions, uh, basically uh, kind of uh, having state legislatures appoint the electors to the Electoral College independently of the vote outcome in a particular state. Like, we actually haven't seen that type of thing. Uh, Obviously, that sentiment is more prevalent on the Republican side, uh, but there are surveys that have shown anywhere from a third to 40% of the public is willing to entertain sentiments that are clearly authoritarian or illiberal in nature. That is very problematic in terms of today's scene. You use two words, authoritarian and illiberal. Are they the same thing? Do you mean the same thing? And can you describe beyond Trump, of course, who is sui generis, but are there other politicians who fall into this category? You talk in your book about what you call copycat candidates. Are there particular people, particularly within the Republican, but also within the Democratic Party, who speak to this crisis? Uh, There are a number of Republicans who are mimicking uh, Trump's line. So, you know, if Trump is not the nominee in 2024, it is going to be somebody who echoes his critiques and is willing to embrace some of his uh, tactics. Uh, Obviously, what we saw on January 6th was a travesty. But what Trump did was to basically expose some of the legal flaws in our system, the way the Electoral College operates, uh, the way that states certify the elections uh, within uh, their boundaries, and then how Congress uh, basically counts the Electoral College votes. What Trump did was to show everybody how to exploit the vagueness. The system held, uh, Daryl. I mean, every the vast majority of, of, of Republicans push back on it. Mike Pence is clearly, who's, if, who seems a fairly hardcore conservative, he was hostile to Trump. Um, of course, January 6th was in a sense a crisis, but the voting system held up in November. So it seems to me as if it only proves the the strength of American democracy. I would love to think that. Uh, and if you're right, I would applaud uh, that. Uh, but I am dubious of that uh, proposition. I think the fact that the system actually worked in 2020 does not guarantee that it's going to work in 2024, uh, in part because state legislatures have passed laws that make it more difficult 
for certain populations, uh, such as minority uh, populations, to uh, vote. Uh, there are more barriers that are being uh, put. Could you explain in, uh, that, Carol? I've, I've heard that a lot of times before. Carol Anderson's an old friend of mine. She's been on the show. But how exactly are these state legislatures um, coming up with, uh, with, with policies, with new laws that restrict the particular voting of, of certain groups of people, African-Americans or Hispanics, for example? Well, in 2020, we had a record voter turnout, like it was a hundred year high. One of the reasons we had such a high turnout was COVID made it easier for different types of things to be put in place. So mail balloting provisions were uh, liberalized. Early voting uh, was uh, encouraged. So there were a number of things that basically made it easy. And when it's easy to vote, uh, many Americans are turned out to vote. We now are turning back the clock in the sense of there are a number of states that are restricting the amount of time for early voting. Uh, they're cutting back on mail voting opportunities. But more worrisome is they're doing things that are targeting minority communities to try and uh, suppress the minority vote, which clearly would advantage uh, the Republican Party if they were successful in doing that. So there have been a series of legal changes since 2020 that are going to uh, uh, set the parameters for how the 2024 election operates. And many of those things are quite worrisome to me. Are they illegal? They're not illegal if state legislatures have passed them, and the Supreme Court seems to be ready to ratify a number of these uh, restrictions. Uh, there's even a, uh, a court case which the Supreme Court has agreed to hear in the fall from North Carolina, where basically they are going to, uh, the case uh, basically is going to try and limit the ability of state courts to overturn state legislative decisions. A lot of what Republicans are trying to do now is to uh, basically empower state legislatures to have a stronger role in certifying the winner, even if the winner uh, does not reflect the popular vote in that particular state. So there have been legal changes, uh, there have been court interpretations, and so the 2024 situation is going to be different than what we saw in 2020. And so the fact that the system worked uh, the last time does not mean it's going to work the next time. The system has never worked very well. We did a show, for example, on the history of gerrymandering in this country, in which both parties are equally guilty. It seems to me as if the arguments now are coming particularly from one side, from progressives, because of the way in which Republicans are using the law. But it's no different from gerrymandering. It's no different from any of either party's strategy in trying to win elections. And that does not suggest to me that democracy is in crisis. If anything, it suggests it's working. People are using every systematic loophole to benefit themselves. There's nothing illegal about that, and there's nothing authoritarian about it. It's a much more systematic and more coordinated effort than what we've seen in the past. And it's not just simply parties trying to gain an advantage for themselves, which are right, parties uh, do that all the time. But they're doing it in a way to try and suppress certain votes, to encourage other uh, kinds of votes. 
but also to count the votes in a very different way. That is the threatening part uh, that uh, we are facing as we go forward uh, into the future. And it's the same thing that we've seen in all these other countries around the world where there's been democratic backsliding. Like they changed the rules of the election process to rig the system. This is one area in which Donald Trump actually is right. You know, he says the system is rigged, uh, but it's actually rigged in a different sort of way than he claims. You talk about this as a systematic plot of some sort. Is it coming from particular people within the political parties? Is it just on the right? Is it just within the Republicans or are the Democrats is equally guilty of this? Right now, it is coming from the right, and it's the Republican Party that is the architect of a lot of these uh, legal changes and then lawsuits designed to uh, produce uh, additional changes uh, down the road. But the we face a problem now in the sense that neither side trusts the other, uh, neither side trusts the motives of the other, people see the other side as enemies. And so there's a risk right now, I believe it's stronger uh, coming from the conservative side, but down the road, demographic change is basically going to empower progressives. And if Republicans basically try and rig the system in their favor, there's the risk 10 years from now that progressives uh, may uh, do that. So this is not just a short-term issue. It is going to be a continuing uh, challenge on a long-term basis in the United States. Your book comes with a, a very nice blurb from, um, from uh, uh, Thomas Edsall, who has an interesting piece also um, in the New York Times this morning about red and blue America never being the same changes in the demographics and culture of, of American political parties. The wealthy support the de Democrats more. Perhaps there's more of a, a racial element. But again, I don't understand what's really changed. Politics is always about change. There's never been consensus in this country. It's always been divided on class and gender and race. So what's different? Well, one thing that is clearly different is the high level of income inequality that we see in America. Like if you look at the numbers, inequality is at a 100 year high. You basically have to go back to the 1920s and the 1930s to have the same level of income inequality that we have today. And this has political consequences uh, in the sense that rich people and wealthy corporations are basically trying to convert their economic power into political power. And the Supreme Court is letting them do that. You know, we see a lot of dark money uh, in the election process, as well as in the governance system. Uh, we see uh, that uh, the wealthy are using their uh, clout to try and rig uh, the government uh, in their own favor uh, and to make sure that, you know, they have favorable uh, tax cuts and favorable economic uh, policies. Yeah, Daryl, now you're beginning to sound absurd. I mean, the, the reality is, as Edsel notes, that w more and more wealthy people are actually supporting the Democratic Party. Uh, so if anything, uh, the, the system's been turned upside down. Are you suggesting that there's some sort of Marxist plot to control the government in this country by the wealthy? No, absolutely not. Uh, I don't uh, emphasize uh, that in my book, and I would not endorse uh, that particular uh, view. But I do think that uh, wealthy individuals are having a corrosive impact on our governance uh, system. Uh, they have rigged the political system in their own favor. We have redistricting how, that is advantaging uh, how the them. And so all these things are coming together in high. How have the wealthy done it specifically? You keep on talking about these plots. You're beginning to sound like one of these 
characters on Twitter. How, how are the wealthy doing this? Can you give me some examples of the wealthy rigging the system, controlling government illegally in an authoritarian way? Uh, look at tax policy. Basically, the 40-year history, uh, 1980 through uh, 2020 and continuing up to the current period, is the tax laws uh, are definitely advantaging uh, wealthy people and allowing them to keep more of their wealth, which is the reason income inequality has reached this very high uh, level. I mean, I, uh, but, but Darrell, I'm sorry to keep on jumping in. I mean, the, the your, your local paper, the, the Washington Post, is owned by the richest man in the world. It's extremely sympathetic to your position. Uh, many other progressives where I live in Silicon Valley, in, in San Francisco, are deeply opposed to the system that you're discussing. America is much more complex than the one you're presenting. If in anything, it's the poor who are most, certainly a, a slice of the poor or of the lower middle class that are most uh, sympathetic to the wealthy in this country. So it's more complicated, isn't it? Uh, I mean, there there certainly are lots of uh, issues to unpack there, but I do worry about the corrosive power of money in American uh, politics. I think our public policies have been skewed in one uh, direction, uh, in ways that help uh, the wealthy. This is limited economic opportunity for average Americans. I mean, you can look at uh, wage levels uh, over the last uh, two to three uh, decades, and they basically have remained stagnant. This has fueled a lot of the populism uh, that Trump was able to exploit. And so this is a challenge. When you look at other countries, Oftentimes, it's this type of populist sentiments that actually enables authoritarian actions on the part of a leader. So it's no accident that this authoritarian risk is arriving at a time when we have high income inequality, when there's a populist uh, backlash, and people are looking for scapegoats. Like They know that they're not doing well, uh, and there are leaders that are trying to direct their anger uh, in particular ways uh, that could uh, threaten the future of American democracy. Darrell, you use this word populist as if it's a bad term, almost as an insult, but there's a strong tradition of populism on the left. Uh, Thomas Frank has been on this show, many others. Are you articulating the, the sort of uh, 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 an intolerant technocratic centrism of, 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 of institutions like Brookings? What's wrong with populism? People should be angry and should, people should vote out of anger. That doesn't, again, undermine democracy and, and it doesn't suggest that there's anything wrong with America. People have good reason to be angry and to follow populist leaders either on the left or the right. There's nothing wrong with populist sentiments and people being angry at the system. In fact, as you uh, mentioned, they're right to be uh, angry because the system is rigged against them. The problem is when there are politicians that use their anger to basically undermine democracy, undermine majority rule, and to move the country in directions that are uh, dangerous, in my view. So in my book, I, I outline kind of the threats to procedural justice in America, uh, threats uh, on uh, the way politicians are using race. I mean, race is, has always been used in an ugly way in uh, American history, uh, but it's being used very openly uh, right now in, in ways that I think are quite shocking. 
more openly, Daryl, than in the past, more openly than the, the dog whistling, both explicit and implicitly, that's a central feature of American history. Nixon, McCarthy, I mean, the, the list is endless. I don't, to me, it, it doesn't sound as if things are certainly any worse. If anything, they might be a little better. Uh, I don't uh, think that they are uh, better. Uh, I see a, a lot of very overt appeals to racial, racial prejudice, uh, kind of uh, pitting uh, groups against uh, one but another. But even that, okay, even if I accept your argument that, and, and it's clearly there's some truth to it, is that, does that undermine democracy? The fact that people rely on irrationalism or hatred to win votes, that's always been a feature of democratic politics from the beginning of democracy in America and every other democratic system in the world. That doesn't necessarily suggest that democracy is in crisis. It perhaps means that it works. Well, when fear and emotions start to win out over facts and reason, I think we have a problem. And right now, people have their own facts. There are false facts uh, that are uh, becoming widespread. Uh, we saw a lot of that uh, during uh, COVID. We have uh, climate uh, change uh, uh, deniers as well. Uh, we have the lies uh, surrounding uh, uh, the 2020 election. It seems like emotion is winning out over reason. And well, I think- What's wrong with that? Emotion, politics is about emotion. You at Brookings want reason, but the rest of us don't. Why should politics be about reason? Why shouldn't it be about emotion? You bring up COVID. Lots because of the political system about, well, is Let going... me finish on the COVID thing. Uh, lots of emotion about COVID. People saying it's, it's the flu, it's not the flu. People keep on changing their opinions. So there's no reason to be... Uh, there's no reason that, that democracy and technocracy aren't the same thing. If anything, we need a little bit more emotion, don't we? Our political leaders are going to make bad decisions if there is not some factual rationale for their analysis. I mean, the world is much more complicated now. Geopolitics has grown more complicated. You have the rise of China, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, if our leaders are not kind of basing their decisions, at least on some type of rationality and some factual basis, I fear for the future of the country. Like one of the reasons why America has been uh, great uh, in the past is we had a great scientific establishment. Uh, we are a world leader in digital uh, technology, but there are no guarantees those things are going to continue because the problem of authoritarian regimes is they often undermine science. They often undermine uh, facts. They undermine the reason uh, basis of the society. There's something chilling, though, about the argument you're making. It suggests that we need a, a technocracy of scientists, of administrators, of men like you in the Brookings Institute who aren't accountable. Could you give me some examples of politicians who fit your model? Uh, are you thinking perhaps of uh, Emmanuel Macron in France, who's been on this show before? Is he your model of a responsible politician? Uh, President Macron... Uh, uh, I think is a very smart uh, individual. I wouldn't necessarily endorse all of his uh, policies, but you know he is somebody who uh, has emerged as a very strong uh, leader uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, and so, uh, you know, someone like him, uh, I actually, uh, I would not worry about democracy if uh, we had leaders like that. 
what I see happening is American leadership is moving in very different uh, directions towards uh, leaders who uh, sometimes are irrational. They're making arguments uh, that are not uh, based uh, on facts, and they are trying to further divide uh, the country. You, you keep on saying this, but could you give me some examples beyond Trump, firstly? And secondly, could you give me some models from American history who are positive models for your healthy democracy? Well, uh, I think many of our past presidents, uh, both from uh, the Democratic and Republican side, actually fit the model of uh, uh, leaders uh, that were oh, me, can you Give me some examples. I mean, the one that comes to mind is Nixon, who was simultaneously paranoid, but also a good policymaker. And there are many policies from the Nixon administration that I would endorse and actually still are part of uh, the American uh, uh, system. Uh, so uh, I think when you kind of compare uh, Nixon, Bill Clinton, uh, uh, Reagan uh, and uh, and uh, other leaders, they were in a stronger position to safeguard the country, uh, to make uh, good decisions uh, than what we're seeing uh, today. Uh, the emergence of Trump and the Trump wannabes uh, is very threatening. Uh, it suggests the country is moving in a very different uh, direction, and it suggests uh, differences uh, even than what we've seen in the recent past. Are there models, contemporary models of politicians who you think um, provide us with positive examples to move forward in this country? I mean, you keep on talking about Trump and you, the, the book is Trump and the assault on American democracy, but you go beyond Trump. You say it's not just Trump, there's a systematic threat. But, but what politicians would you use as examples where the system works, who are around today, whose names people might recognize? Well, certainly all the leaders on the uh, House uh, uh, Investigatory uh, Committee, I have tremendous respect for, and that includes both Democrats and Republicans. Like I never would have thought, I would have uh, believed Liz Cheney would be a statesperson, but she's demonstrated a great uh, leadership uh, and interest in actually finding uh, the truth. Uh, Adam Kinzinger, I would put in the same category. So there are Republicans who are stepping up to the plate and trying to get to the bottom of this and also trying to introduce changes that would actually prevent this uh, from happening again. Uh, so I'm not just making an argument that only progressive leaders are uh, the role models. There are conservative leaders who actually are worried about the future of the country and are taking very uh, constructive steps to protect our future. What happens if the next election is Biden against Trump? Do you think that there is a likelihood of a third party candidate. And do you think that we should celebrate that? There likely will be third party candidates, but I don't think they will be decisive. Like in a highly polarized era, the system basically forces people to choose between the left and the right. And that is unfortunate. Like there are structural changes in, in our election process uh, that I would endorse try and give people more uh, choices. Uh, but, you know, there is a possibility that that will be our choice in 2024, uh, Biden versus uh, Trump. Uh, now, you know, if uh, that is the choice and Trump wins uh, uh, in that type of uh, contest, that's one thing. But I worry that the system is being rigged in such a way that he's almost guaranteed uh, to win. 
that I find highly problematic. Why? Because of all this, all these local initiatives. I mean, you're already, you're already seems to be laying the ground for a, a counter conspiracy theory, just as Trump created a conspiracy theory about winning and losing in 2020. Now you're creating one for 2024. So you're saying that if, if he but does win, then it's the illegal facts. by definition. But this is based on the facts and possible scenarios. Well, we all hear about everyone's facts are somebody else's opinion or misinformation or propaganda, aren't they, Daryl? Well, in my book, I try and present a compelling case on why there are systematic threats to American democracy right now from a voting standpoint, an institution standpoint, the information the ecosystem, uh, the, the problems of how our culture is developed and uh, the uh, challenges facing effects uh, in America. So uh, I just uh, think that uh, we're at a possible turning point. Uh, we may be able to overcome uh, these barriers, and I certainly hope that we do, uh, but there are no guarantees. People often assume because American democracy has survived for more than two centuries that it's always going to be there. When you look around the world, that uh, uh, assumption is not warranted. Well, it's an interesting observation, Dara, as you can tell, I'm not in agreement with you, but let's end with some very concrete steps to lessen this threat what needs to happen if if indeed you're right what must change in america over the next few years to uh, preserve american democracy we need to get rid of the electoral college that obviously is not going to happen before the 2024 election but on a longer term basis we need to do that a lot of people don't uh, realize that if you look at all the presidential elections from 1990 two through uh, 2020 republicans have won the presidential popular vote only once during that entire time period that was uh, 2004 when bush won the popular vote over uh, john Kerry. but in every other election either the democratic president has won uh, and become president or the republican candidate has lost the popular vote but then become president through the electoral college so the electoral college is skewing American democracy. We have to get rid of it uh, because it is enabling minority rule, uh, minority rule meeting uh, rule by a political minority. But you just suggested that isn't going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen in the next few uh, elections, but we need to think about long-term political reforms that will make a difference and will help uh, safeguard American democracy. Uh, in the book, I present a number of things. Uh, there are threats arising from uh, presidential emergency powers. A lot of people don't understand that there actually are laws on the books that allow presidents unilaterally to declare an emergency in a particular area and basically rule unilaterally, a kind of not subject to uh, those provisions being overturned uh, by uh, Congress. Uh, that is very dangerous if you end up with a malevolent leader. Uh, and uh, so we need to start to limit the ability of presidents to have such unlimited types of power. Like, that is a dangerous loophole. But that's an old debate. I mean, we've been going backwards and forwards on presidential power for generations, Daryl. There's nothing new about that. But what's new is we assume certain kinds of self-restraint on the part of our presidents, and clearly we can no longer uh, assume that. 
Uh, Trump uh, pushed a, a number of different limits uh, when he was president. If he happens to get another term, he is going to push the limits even more. And from a legal standpoint, there are few restraints on his ability to declare a state of national emergency, uh, to basically say there's an emergency in telecommunications or in aviation or in uh, immigration, and basically uh, rule unilaterally. Uh, and so those are laws that we need to re revisit to start to put some restrictions, to put Congress in a situation where if presidents start to act that way, uh, that Congress can actually overturn some of those provisions. Right now, that is not the case. And finally, uh, so we, we need some congressional provisions in terms of controlling presidential power. We need to shut down the Electoral College and replace it with something more representational. Anything else? And we need to get a handle on our information ecosystem, which is so toxic right now that it is basically encouraging both extremism and polarization. So uh, the social media platforms need to get more responsible in kind of uh, taking responsibility for what takes place on their own uh, platforms. They need to be more aggressive in terms of content uh, moderation because some of the lies and some of the propaganda is basically spreading through these uh, networks. Like they are overpowering the New York Times and the Washington Post of the world. So you're suggesting that if had Elon Musk bought Twitter, he shouldn't let Donald Trump back onto the platform? He shouldn't let any politician that advocates violence on the platform. That could include Trump or other uh, types of uh, individuals. Uh, Elon Musk actually would have moved Twitter in a different sort of way. Like Twitter actually is starting to get more aggressive on content moderation. Uh, Musk was on record as saying he didn't like that and he was going to become more libertarian in how he would uh, use uh, Twitter had he become uh, the owner. So you're suggesting more moderation, more editorial control of these platforms and more more of a sense of responsibility. Right now, it's basically a wild west on Twitter and Facebook, and that is corrosive for our civil society and it's corrosive for American democracy. But that's that isn't going to change either, is it? Actually, that could change because both conservatives and progressives in Congress are starting to come together basically in their critique of the large tech platforms. They think these uh, platforms have too much uh, power, they're too influential, and that they are dangerous. And so I do think we will see uh, more aggressive uh, content moderation on the part of the platforms themselves, but uh, also uh, state legislatures and uh, Congress starting to pass more restrictions in that area. I know, Darrell, you've, you've written a number of books on this, so you're certainly a, an expert in the information technology political um, uh, area. Uh, your new book, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy, is an interesting take. I, I think it's a little panicky, but I'm probably wrong, as I, as I, as I am on most things. And congratulations uh, on the book. You have held up well on the hostile assault. <laughs> Uh, Daryl, um, what else are you reading these days? What else should people be reading in addition to your new book, Power, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy? Actually, there are some uh, great uh, books uh, out there. Uh, uh, so uh, many of the uh, books that are coming out on January 6th, I would recommend Jonathan Lemire has uh, a book, uh, I think it's entitled The Big Lie. So I would certainly recommend that. And there are other uh, kind of participants who've been uh, writing their memoirs on this as well.
Any books you don't agree with that you think people might read for value? Uh, actually, I try and we read a wide range of uh, content, uh, liberal, moderate, uh, 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 a conservative uh, as well. Uh, so I, uh, I definitely recommend that people read from a variety of different uh, standpoints, because uh, even if you don't agree with the book, you need to understand uh, how other people are thinking. 